Hello and welcome to The Kindness of Strangers, the student-friendly podcast based on A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. Each episode we consider a character, theme or contextual factor you will need to master if you're studying the text at A-level. The Kindness of Strangers believes in mindful learning and that's why each episode will begin and end with a short exercise to aid your well-being as well as your study-friendly concentration. Happy listening! Every day we are so overwhelmed by all of our senses, simultaneously seeing, hearing, feeling and sometimes smelling and tasting all at the same time. Without us realising it, it can be easy for our minds to become clouded but also for us to miss so much as our bodies and minds struggle to multitask this sensory overload. Sometimes a good way of centering ourselves can just be to intentionally focus on one sense for a short period of time. Today we'll do this with 11 seconds of listening. In a moment, I'm going to give you some silence for 11 seconds. And in that time, I want you to try and switch off your other senses as much as possible. Close your eyes to limit your visuals. Ignore anything you may smell, don't eat or drink. Hold your hands in your lap and be still to avoid touching anything. And just listen. Listen to anything loud, notice anything quiet. Just spend a little time in any layers of sounds. So here's your 11 seconds. And that's it. How did that time of concentrated listening feel into you? Maybe think about doing that a few times a week or a day just to focus in on your listening. Now let's get on with the podcast. Welcome to this episode where we'll be examining the controversial character that is Stanley Kowalski. The face of a new age of America, a volatile husband and a principal aggravator in Blanche's downfall. He really is quite a complex character to consider. What's more, our views as an audience have shifted hugely in how we perceive Stanley Kowalski, shaped of course by the changes in Western society and culture. So, without further ado, let's get to work on exploring the male figurehead depicted in A Streetcar Named Desire. First impressions. Let's begin with our first introduction to Stanley Kowalski, right at the beginning of scene one. After the detailed opening stage directions depicting downtown New Orleans, Mr. Kowalski's stomping ground, we meet a young man who holds a similar raffish charm. Stanley enters the stage with Mitch, described as being about 30, and Williams decides to include a detail on costume, with Stanley being roughly dressed in blue denim work clothes and carrying a bowling jacket. Stanley's dress pictures him as working class, casual and modern. He's also holding a red stained package, a portion of meat he's just bought from the butchers, which may be a subtle hint upon his role as the hunter-gatherer. His unrefined way of speaking is made clear to the audience immediately. The stage directions tell us how he bellows, his expression is casual with gnaw and hey, and his exclamatory tone suggests a loud-mouthed, brash characterisation. 
unabashed, his wife, Stella, feels the shame for him in being shouted at in the street. Contrastingly, she speaks mildly and corrects his social behaviour with the imperative, don't holler at me like that. The stage directors have already told us Stella is of a background obviously quite different from her husband's, and so this social tension surrounding Stanley is presented from the outset. In the opening dialogue between he and Stella, the dynamics are interesting to say the least. Their exchanges are brief, swapping minor monosyllabic sentences as he throws her the meat from the butchers. He appears less interested than her. While she's still laughing breathlessly at the package being heaved at her, he's already started back around the corner. No sweet goodbyes or farewells here. Her interrogatives that follow show her almost pining after him, whilst he continues to respond in a direct but blunt manner. As they exit stage, he goes out and then she follows, perhaps a sign of who's in charge in this relationship. Absent for the reunion between Stella and Blanche, Stanley returns towards the end of the first scene, cementing our first impressions of him. He returns to the bowling alley with his friends as they arrange a poker game for the following night. The first two occasions in which we have seen Stanley concern his social circle, suggesting he is a social and popular character, but also what we may call a man's man. The reference to poker pits Stanley as a gambling man, traditionally masculine and suggesting a tendency for risk. As he enters the apartment, Williams goes to great lengths to invest in the stage directions that depict his character. There is early reference to his animal joy, zoomorphic imagery that will return again and again throughout the play. This zoomorphism is soon specified, picturing him as a richly feathered male bird among hens, to imply his sexual prowess and pride. The descriptors of him sizing women up and as the gaudy seed bearer appeals the disgust of a feminist audience, not exactly the kind of man we would wish for our sons to become or our daughters to marry. In his first moments of meeting Blanche, he removes his shirt, creating an awkward sexual tension between the brother and sister-in-law. But very quickly, he shows he is able to unearth Blanche's trauma, inquiring into Blanche's early marriage, which at once propels her into a sick and dizzy spell. Perhaps a sign to come of his effect on Blanche. Suspicion. At the beginning of scene two, we see Stanley's suspicion of Blanche start to be aroused. Hearing that they have lost Belle Reeve, Stanley becomes concerned about the vague details surrounding the loss of the estate, something by marriage he would be entitled to. He becomes more and more agitated as he and Stella talk whilst Blanche bathes, asking about deeds of sales and papers. Stanley is a facts man and doesn't stand for any ambiguity. He references the Napoleonic Code, which he defines as a Louisiana code that dictates that what belongs to one belongs to the other within a marriage. This explains his grave concerns. He feels he has lost his property, and without an explanation? His repetition of swindled in this scene reveals his chief concern. Stanley does not like to be cheated. Being cheated is to be undermined, and to be undermined is to lose one's power. Stanley must feel he holds power, It is how he marks his self-worth. Rifling through Blanche's belongings, as literature students, we are drawn to the heavy use of dynamic verbs in the stage directions. Stanley stalks, pulls open, jerks out, 
pulls and kicks. He is set on uncovering any secrets Blanche's trunk may hold and is riled up even further by what he perceives to be fine furs, ropes of pearls and diamonds. His ignorance is shown by Stella, who corrects his assumptions of their great worth, explaining the items of her luggage to be passed down or old or serving as costume jewellery, as she explains the material of rhinestone is next door to glass. This suspicion escalates through the remainder of the play, Stanley quizzing Blanche and secretly spying into her past with the help of his contacts. He really does seem to pursue a bitter vendetta against Blanche from early on in the play. And as an audience, we wait to see how this plays out and know it will inform the outcome of the plot. By scene five, he has already done enough background checks to quiz Blanche on her familiarity with someone named Shaw and the Hotel Flamingo. His suggestions clearly unnerve Blanche and he seems to enjoy the effect he is having on her, making her cringe. He promises to check further and clear up any mistake when Blanche denies any knowledge of Shaw or the Hotel Flamingo, foreshadowing his later findings, an intimate in a sense of threat. By scene seven, he knows more, revealing all to Stella as Blanche bathes again. He seems to take great joy in relaying, as he terms it, the dope on Blanche. He informs Stella that Blanche resided at the Hotel Flamingo, a place of ill repute, and it is implied that either Blanche solicited sex from her hotel room, or she was very free with the number of sexual encounters she enjoyed there. Secondly, he finds out the true reason for a work dismissal, an affair with a 17-year-old boy. Stanley highlights the controversies of Blanche's past, emphasising her behaviour as shameful. Of course, the affair with her student is definitely wrong, but Stanley's views and the public's clear ostracising of Blanche because of her sexual behaviour highlight the taboo surrounding women's sexual agency and expression. Stanley is very much an enforcer of this taboo, contradictory as he enjoys an active sex life himself and is married to a woman who clearly relishes their sex life too. But more than this, Stanley's investigations are an attempt to catalyse Blanche's tragic fall. He is threatened by her elitism. She makes him feel inferior in terms of both class and intelligence and he will not stand for being emasculated in his own home. Stanley seeks to bring Blanche down. But what do we think of this? Are his actions justified because Blanche is confirmed to be a liar, so his suspicions were reasonable? Or has he unnecessarily brought up truths from the past that Blanche could have moved on from? How do you view it? A New America To some critics, Stanley presents as an egalitarian hero. To be egalitarian is to advocate for quality for all people, progressive in the face of old-class divides. He believes he, as a working-class American of Polish descent, is entitled to the same rights, opportunities and respect as the next one. In this way, his more progressive views and confidence in his own self-worth is even admirable, and these views and attitudes represent the wider change going on between the Old South and the New South, a breaking down of barriers and levelling out for all. In opposition, Blanche personifies the Old South. But through a comparison with Stanley, the things she stands for are shown in a bad light. Blanche's use of the derogatory term Polak to describe Stanley and Polish people on several occasions is shown to be dated, prejudiced and ignorant. 
When Stanley corrects her use of this term, he is viewed far more favourably than her in these moments. Blanche is past it. Stanley is modern. Modern audiences are particularly switched on to the power of language and the semantics that inform prejudice, conscious or unconscious. We are well aware that Blanche's terminology is politically incorrect and that her blatant flouting of these lexical codes is shocking. But even to an audience of the time, Blanche's use of language would have been viewed as deliberately offensive and Stanley viewed in a more sympathetic light. Not only does Stanley correct Blanche's linguistics, but he corrects the way she defines him, the way she classifies him as being other. Being of Polish descent, he is keen to emphasise that America is his country of birth. 100% American, born and raised in the greatest country on earth and proud as hell of it, is what he says. In US culture, patriotism is a key part of the American identity, and Stanley's pride and use of superlative to describe his place of birth as the greatest would have resonated with American audiences both then and now. Having recently emerged from World War II, patriotism was high in post-war America, and Stanley speaks the most to the sentiments of this audience. In scene one, we learn that Stanley was a master sergeant in the engineer's corps, Veterans were highly prized and respected in post-war America, and so Stanley is considered with a certain reverence as a World War II veteran. The tensions between the Old South and the New South sprung from the merging of classes and people from all walks of life. And as we discussed in the last episode, the genre of the Southern Gothic often celebrates this levelling act. In scene eight, it is no accident that Williams has Stanley quote the words of Huey Long, a governor of Louisiana and populist champion of the poor, who denounced the wealthy and advocated for the American dream. He quotes his word, every man is a king. The determiner every revealing his belief in himself and for all men, no matter their background. In the New South, everyone has the possibility to make something of their life. In championing the New South over the Old South, Williams also suggests that Stanley has been responsible for converting Stella from one to the other, opening her eyes to a new world. In scene eight, he describes Stella having shown him a picture of Belle Reeve with all the white columns, but how he pulled her down off them columns. Stanley was successfully knocked Stella off her elitist pedestal, bringing her down to a place he feels is more grounded. In this way, he has already successfully merged the worlds of the Old and New South, and Blanche threatens that through returning with her dated ways. Stanley must persevere and conquer once again. Ironically, while he personifies the future of America in so many ways, Blanche actually thinks his manner is so brutish it is degenerate, further back in our evolutionary history. In her epic ape monologue in scene four, She really lets rip on her true feelings about Stanley, and her descriptions are degrading, to say the least. But are they true? Can we see her point? She describes him as subhuman, like an animal, not quite to the stage of humanity and ape-like. She feels as though time has moved on. We have all become so much more civilised, and yet we have, quote, Stanley Kowalski, survivor of the Stone Age. Her sibilance adds to the mocking tone of the exclamatory mood. His needs are basic, his behaviour is ugly, his manner is untamed and unpredictable. So perhaps Stanley encompasses both the past and the future. 
sex and masculinity. Stanley is sexually assertive and as well as the stage directions in scene one alluding to the fact that he may be very sexually experienced, we certainly see a sexual assertion in his relationship with his wife Stella and in a non-consensual way with his sister-in-law Blanche. Stanley's sexual magnetism seems beyond Stella's control when she slinks back to him after he has beaten her at the end of scene three. When they meet at the bottom of the stairs, they stare at each other and then meet with animal moans. To the civilised, Stella and Stanley should not be returning to their marital bed together, not so soon at least. But their passion for each other is below civilization. It is raw and instinctive. Blanche describes Stella and Stanley's relationship as brutal desire. And do we see much success in their marriage apart from their active sex life? Is this maybe all there is? And as Blanche outstays her welcome, Stanley's sex life is being inconvenienced. And if his sex is taken away from him, perhaps he feels emasculated. In scene eight, desperate for Blanche to be gone soon, Stanley reminds Stella of the nights they had together and making noise in the night and the coloured lights. Stanley sees Blanche leaving as the only way he's going to be able to reconnect with his wife. And the only way he is going to reconnect with his wife is sexually. In scene 10, we witness an uncomfortable build-up to Stanley raping Blanche. Hints are dropped of the sexual undertones in the scene. The double entendre of interfere. Stanley donning the silk pyjamas he wore on the night he consummated his marriage. And reference to the loving cup. But when Stanley emerges from the bathroom, he seems darker. And the repeated descriptions of his stares and grinning directed at Blanche disturb us as an audience. But the more that Blanche becomes anxious and distressed, the more this seems to rile him up. This is not purely sexual, but more about power and domination, as is the act of rape. Again, Williams uses the same technique of having the rape take place off stage, leaving this to the imagination of the audience, which only goes to make it seem more dramatic. Stanley's behaviour has crossed a line too disturbing to tolerate. He has used his sexual dominance, masculinity and power against a vulnerable, at this point almost rock-bottom woman. But more than this, this woman is his sister-in-law. And more than this again, he has just left his wife at the hospital and is awaiting the imminent birth of his son. Stanley is no longer sexual, but perverse. He is beyond our empathy. As we've discussed already, Stanley's masculinity is one of his most notable defining features. His high testosterone is clear through his high libido and aggression. He fits the stereotype for the cultural norms that have been attached to what it means to be masculine. But more recently, toxic masculinity has been a hot topic in both sociological studies and mainstream conversation. Does Stanley epitomise some of the key factors of toxic masculinity? Toxic masculinity refers to a certain masculine norms that are harmful to society or men themselves. So let's review some of the key components. Number one, social dominance. Tick. Stanley is social dominant in his social circle, hosting the poker nights, domineering with his friends, outspoken, and with his wife. The power dynamics are certainly more in Stanley's favour. Stella stays out of his way, prepares his meals, and is financially dependent upon him. Number two, sexual obsession. Yes, 
Stanley is sexually assertive with both his wife and others. For example, Blanche. Sex blurs his ethical codes. Number three, misogyny. To some degree, yes, and certainly towards Blanche. He mistrusts her, perhaps partly because she's a woman. He particularly hates it when he's undermined by her, a woman, because he cannot bear to have anyone make him feel inferior. Plus, if you're going to rape women, then you pretty much hate women. Number four, violence. Yes, and more specifically, domestic and sexual violence. This encapsulates a key aspect of toxic masculinity, as toxic masculinity has determined Stanley's assumptions that he has absolute patriarchal power in his domestic space and can use his sexual dominance against the will of others. Number five, emotional repression. Yes, Stanley seems unable to express any emotions apart from anger. And even then, these feelings are not channeled healthily, but through violence. Stanley is described as drinking on several occasions throughout the play, and although perhaps not to the same extent as Blanche, this could be a coping mechanism he adopts to deal with his psychological problems. Number six, harmful to society or himself? Well, yes. His aggression results in harm to those around him, both physical through his violence, but also emotionally. But also Stanley's behaviours harm himself. His actions almost cost him his marriage. But at the end of the play, he is also a new father. And in the final moments of the play, he is pictured in his new paternal role, kneeling beside Stella as she cradles the new son. The depiction of the new family unit at the end is an unsettling one. A mother already regretting the choice she has made, an innocent infant unaware of what he has been born into, and a father who is acting the part, but has just caused great tragedy and whose fitness as a father is yet to be seen. For post-war America, after long spells away from home for many men, being a husband and a father and raising a family came to be a symbol for masculine standing. How does Stanley fit into this image? This episode, we have head of department Mrs Thomas back again to share some of her valuable insights on the play. This time, she'll be telling us a bit about the early reception of Stanley's character and how starkly this may differ because of the cultural context of mid-20th century America. Over to her. Since the play's US premiere in 1947, reaction to the characters has varied. Generally, it is said that audiences favour Stanley, readers Blanche. But surely today's audiences find Stanley's actions abhorrent. In the simplest terms, he beat his pregnant wife and, later, raped her sister while said wife was in labour. But judgement of Stanley has not always been so clear-cut. Sidney Falk reported that the rape scene evoked waves of titillated laughter on its opening night in 1947. During its pre-Broadway tryout, early reviewers praised Marlon Brando's portrayal of part animal, part tenderness, Stanley. They dismissed Blanche as a confirmed liar and described Stanley as an illiterate but crafty factory worker endowed with a capacity for love. Seems to me there that they think his worst crime is being illiterate. They concentrated on him being a Polish war veteran and a lusty young man properly resentful of the patronising manner of his wife's sister and dismissed Blanche as a shoddy heroine. They commented on how Blanche ensnared Mitch, and those verb choices are revealing. 
Stanley, as I said earlier, is endowed with a capacity for love. But Blanche ensnares men. Allocation of the roles of victim and villain are pretty clear there. Kazan himself, director of the first production of the play, as well as the movie, stated that the audiences adored Brando, and he recalled how, when Stanley derided Blanche, they responded with approving laughter. Kazan has also admitted to hating Blanche, and maybe this found its way into the production. Stanley's patriotism regularly garnered rapturous applause from an equally patriotic audience. During his I am 100% American, born and raised in the greatest country on earth speech, and it cannot be denied that he was seen as a hero by many early audiences who could not, perhaps, look past his veteran status. Male violence was necessary for the Allied forces to win World War II, so were Americans resistant to then criticise it? Globally, female rights fall short of those of men. To add to this, rape and victim blaming has gone, and still often does, go hand in hand, and courts today will still fight over the issue of consent. Additionally, in the US... Marital rape, for example, wasn't considered a crime until 1976, and it was not outlawed in all states until 1993. It was not outlawed in the UK until 1991, and, unbelievably, 10 countries still allow spousal rape. In a post-World War II patriarchal society, which had relied upon, encouraged and celebrated male violence, perhaps it shouldn't be that surprising to us modern audiences that Stanley was received in this way. Just as earlier we focused on our sense of listening, we are now going to zone out of this podcast and into ourselves with some mindful eating, or drinking, whichever you have to hand. Mindful eating has been adopted by some in the health community for improving a healthy mentality around food and drink, but not focused on this today, we're just going to use the practice to stay present in ourselves. In our 21st century lives, how often do we just eat or just drink with nothing else going on? We're either chatting with friends, watching something on TV, swiping through our phones. What we're putting into our bodies is just on autopilot. So take a bite of something or a mouthful of water or another kind of drink and let's practice some mindfulness. Taking a sip of your drink or a bite of your food, let it pass your lips and stay in your mouth. Chew if necessary or if not, swill it around your mouth and notice it passing over your teeth, your cheeks, your palate, your tongue. Consider the temperature, cold or cool or warm or hot. Consider the taste, salty or sweet or spicy or bland. How does it feel? Crunchy or soft or dry or soothing? Hold it there once more and then allow yourself to swallow it. You'd be there forever if you did this with every mouthful, of course, but try this next time you feel the need to tune out from the world and tune into yourself. There we have it, Stanley Kowalski. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode and it gave you some food for thought in how you can discuss William's character as part of a whole text essay. Perhaps try restructuring some of the ideas from this podcast into an essay plan that befits your essay structure style, making sure to add in textual references, literary and linguistic terminology, and contextual links along the way. Until next time, happy studying and take care of yourselves.